welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of, purportedly, the 25 greatest scores in American cinema history. We are all the way down to number two on the AFI's list. Which means that on this episode, we will be discussing Max Steiner's score to what film critic Andrew Sarris called the moviest of all movies, <laughs> 1939's Gone with the Wind. <laughs> uh, now what do I do? You say Gone with the Wind was written, produced, and directed by these people. You got confused because I blew you away. <laughs> Just like the title that's going by on screen right now. Yeah. <sighs> Gone with the Wind was written for the screen by Sidney Howard and a bunch of other people who weren't credited, based on the novel by Margaret Mitchell. It was directed by Victor Fleming, and it was produced by David O. Selznick. Andy, tell us about Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is referred to by Wikipedia as an American epic historical romance film, which is about right. Why haven't we been going to Wikipedia for all of these things? (laughs) I mean, I have for some of them. (laughs) Now it comes out. It's a sweeping, sentimental soap opera, a four-hour phenomenon about, of all things, the American Confederacy, centering around the beautiful, strong-willed plantation owner, Scarlett O'Hara. Vivian Lee plays Scarlett O'Hara, who spends the whole movie obsessed with Ashley Wilkes, who's played by Leslie Howard. Ashley Wilkes is married to Melanie Wilkes, who's played by Olivia de Havilland. Meanwhile, the man who perhaps is better for Scarlet, but with whom she has a tumultuous up-and-down relationship, Rhett Butler, is played by Clark Gable. And the O'Hara family's faithful and sharp-tongued servant, Mammy, is played by Hattie McDaniel. So the movie is an epic. It follows Scarlett's life over many years. She starts out as a spoiled, petulant teenager, the daughter of plantation wealth before the Civil War, and she grows into a shrewd, resourceful survivor after the war. The soap opera of it is that we watch her pining for Ashley Wilkes while being friends with his saintly wife and being pursued by Rhett Butler, and meanwhile making strategic marriages to men she doesn't love. And Scarlett's personal progress plays out against the backdrop of the demise of the glorious antebellum lifestyle of the Old South, a world that is now, ahem, gone with the wind, as it gives way to the struggles of the post-war reconstruction. (sighs) Good enough? Yeah, good enough. <laughs> well, Andy, next time we're finally at the number one movie on the list. Can you believe it? Mm-hmm. I think you did this stick once before. Yeah, seemed like the right time to trot it out again. John, are you trying to say something about how you feel about Gone with the Wind? Uh, Yeah, I guess I am. How do you feel about Gone with the Wind? I feel like it is very long. (laughs) How many movies are on this list? 25. That's right. How many of them take up the length of two whole normal movies? (laughs) Three. This has been too many super long movies for me. Yeah, I agree. That's how I feel about super long movies. It's not really the way a movie should be. 
I found this movie uh, pretty repulsive overall. I can say it. And I don't know, you know, maybe it's not quite fair to the movie. Maybe this is a particularly inopportune historical moment to come to this movie for the first time. But I had a real tough time with this movie. I assume you're talking about its historical vantage point and the morality of the history it purports to be about. Or do you mean it's repulsive in some other way? I mean, I do mean that. I didn't find much else in the movie that I actually enjoyed. Really? Yeah. So the Confederacy, slavery aside, you found this not a rewarding movie just at the level of movie making. Yeah, that's right. I just, I mean, I I think my outlook was colored perhaps irretrievably right off the bat by the uh, opening preamble that they put up on the screen all about the romanticization of the old South in kind of galling ways. But I also just found the characters uh, unlikable and uh, I didn't really care about them. At any point. I mean, look, there's a couple of, you know, the big moments. I guess I went along with the big moments. But boy, they are few and far between. Far between. Well, except for the historico-moral position there, that sounds very similar to the way it seemed to me when I was, you know, 11 years old or whatever age I was when I attempted to watch this as a kid. Like, when's the big famous thing that I've heard of? Oh, it's in three hours. (laughs) And that's really all I took away. I have to say that this past couple of weeks... I certainly had to do quite a bit of wrestling with the point of the movie being, yes, a romanticization of the Old South with certain gaps in what it is that it's romanticizing. Pretty hard sell. And with the length, like I just said, but I'm gonna say I found it pretty watchable in its scene-for-scene particulars. Hmm. Especially coming off Lawrence Arabia, where I think you'll remember in that conversation I was saying, why didn't they give us a little more of his interior life? You know, show us what the emotions are and then I'll care about it. This was a movie full of this old-school Hollywood emotionalism, and I felt like it was just constantly giving me a show and a soap opera, which is what it is, with a lot of oomph and star power and When those people are emoting there and this music is going and all those Technicolor colors, I felt like, yeah, there's certainly a show here. What that show's about, what it's saying, how it spools out over four hours, I take some issue there and I did have a little bit of difficulty keeping up my enthusiasm over the long haul. But yeah, I was not left feeling like, uh, I don't care about this. I I cared. I cared as it was happening. All right. Well, I mean, it sounds like we switched places a little bit from Lawrence of Arabia because I felt like I really got why that was a compelling movie and you were left a little cold by it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that I was left cold by that and this I felt like, how could you be left cold by this? It's so gooey and full of, you know, we're going to use the word schmaltz, I think, in a quote from David O. Selznick Mm -hmm. probably later. And that's what this is. It's like they're spooning schmaltz over your head. I'm prepared to use the word schmaltz just on my own recognizance. Go for it. Schmaltz. Lawrence of Arabia was not schmaltz, and this was schmaltz. And um, it's just the kind of person I am, I guess. I feel a little bit nourished by that, whether or not I approve. Subconsciously, I can't help but feel like, all right, you gave me something. Yeah, I just wasn't in the mood for a soap opera, I guess. Especially not a soap opera, which is, you know, ultimately a full-throated endorsement of society propped up by slavery. You know, just, I'm sorry to be, uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's a very tough point. We probably don't want to even make the sound of attempting to address it on this show, but we kind of have to because the music is the essence of romanticizing the thing, right? Yeah, I'm okay with addressing it. Like, you can't avoid it here. I mean, look, in this movie, they use the word darkies a lot, right? Our hero, Scarlett O'Hara, casually considers whether or not to employ convicted prisoners or darkies in her lumber mill. 
I do wish you'd let me hire free darkies instead of using convicts. I believe we could do better. Darkies, but their pay would break us, and convicts are dirt cheap. And you know, just to our ears today, that strikes us as not great, but it strikes us as a little arcane, old-fashioned. It doesn't have the kind of loadedness that words that uh, begin with other letters do nowadays. As used in the book. As used in the book, for example. You know, words come in and out of fashion and usages change, but for all intents and purposes, they may as well be using words that start with different letters up and down this movie. The full brunt of all of the institutionalized awfulness and the attitudes behind it are exactly the same in the word that they do use in the movie and the word that they don't. And yeah, if it had been the word that is now such a third rail to everybody's ears, it would have been a lot harder to pretend that this movie isn't about what it's actually about. I will say, I was surprised how close they got to talking about things that show that they really did know what was going on. Yes, that scene where they talk about who they should hire for the lumber mill. He's like, oh, I would have freed them. You know I wasn't going to free them. I thought, why are they even daring to bring this subject up? It just exposes the crazy hypocrisy of the entire thing. If I let you alone, you'll be giving them chicken three times a day and tucking them to sleep with eider-down quilts. Scarlet, I will not make money out of the enforced labor and misery of others. You weren't so particular about owning slaves. That was different. We didn't treat them that way. Besides, I'd have freed them all when father died. If the war hadn't already freed them. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Like, this is the kind of really, you know, awful, insidious argument that had immense currency, which was that slavery wasn't so bad because we treated them okay. You know, they had it pretty good. You know, I mean, that's what Ashley is saying in that conversation. I mean, there's also the scene that they might as well be saying the Ku Klux Klan, but they don't. Right. Where they go to a political meeting, and the political meeting consists of uh, shooting a lot of people who were camping in the woods. Yeah. I mean, and that's clear in the book is that it's... It's the Klan, yeah. The book makes no bones about being really pro-Ku Klux Klan. They kind of just omitted to mention that detail for the movie, but it's the same action that's described in the book that happens in the movie. Yeah, well, see, I thought you were bringing this up, and you might well be bringing this up, because I think that Gone with the Wind itself, and indeed possibly this music, has had a hand in perpetuating these things that might have died with that generation otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I was shocked to find, when I really addressed this movie, I was kind of amazed to find it resonating with all kinds of awfulness that inexplicably is uh, still kicking around. Yeah, but are you saying that you think it's still kicking around because of Hollywood classic Gone with the Wind? Uh, Maybe not because of, but uh, Gone with the Wind's not helping. Because, all right, let's dive into the music right now. Great. Because if you know any music from this movie, you know this. And you also probably know, as I did even at 11 years old, that when you hear that, you're usually looking at a gorgeous Technicolor sunset behind the beautiful rolling hills of the plantation house where Scarlett O'Hara and family live, Tara. To be clear, and this is something that I, it took me a while into my life to understand that the name Terra is the name of the land and the plantation and not a person. 
Right. I think it's the name of the like uh, Mount Olympus for the Irish uh, yeah, yeah. heroes. It's out of Irish mythology. Yeah. Yeah. Because her father, if you didn't know, is Irish. <laughs> make kind of a point of this. Well, anyway, there it is. It's gone with the wind. It's a beautiful house and beautiful hills and beautiful sunset and this music. So like I just said, officially, this is the theme for the house. But clearly... This is music about some emotion and some concept bigger than a house. Mm -hmm. They say it's about the land, but it is not about dirt. It is about something that matters more. And the question is what that thing is. The political question is what that thing is. And because it's encoded in music, it's genuinely ambiguous, possibly even to the people who made the movie. I actually thought that the music here is probably the reason that this movie that is indeed a very pro-Confederacy movie still lives on in culture. Like, how is it that people still watch this movie when, uh, you know, Song of the South is thoroughly suppressed and God knows how many products of uh, the mass culture from the early 20th century are now, you know, can't pass in polite society anymore. Rightfully so. But Gone with the Wind still going pretty darn strong after 80 years. I think it's because the feel of it, the sound of it, the music of it, it tells you what emotion you're having, but it doesn't tell you what you're having that emotion about. I mean, it certainly doesn't sound like the old South. Mm -hmm. If you had to say it sounded like something, maybe it's supposed to sound like uh, an Irish sentimental ballad, like a Danny Boy type of song, but really it just sounds like feeling the human spirit, (laughs) life, yearning. I mean, the movie basically throws up its hands and is like, I don't know how that big house got paid for. I don't know what goes on in a plantation because this isn't about that. Right. So if that's the sin, because actually it is about that and it's making an equation here, then yeah, that's a terrible sin. But if that's the saving grace, then yeah, you can watch this whole movie and not realize why these people live this aristocratic way and not have to engage with it. Yeah, well, see, that's the problem. Yeah, you're right. The story isn't about these kinds of issues at all. It's just a soap opera that happens to be set there. But the thing that I really found offensive was the ideas that the movie is based around, the romanticization of this genteel society as something that's worth celebrating and remembering fondly, independent of the slavery and the racism, is a really insidious awful idea that has caused real, real harm in many people's lives for a long time. The very idea that you can say, well, yes, we don't like slavery anymore, but look, we had this pleasant lifestyle and wasn't it grand, is mega problematic. It is. It is. And at the same time, there's always going to be an emotional temptation there. When I am moved by da-da, da-da, and the sunset, am I participating in anything other than being reminded of sunsets and pretty places and moments that I've been happy in my life? No, no, you're not. I don't mean to lay this on your feet or anybody, any audience members or listeners' feet. This was just part and parcel of my experience with the movie. What do you think would have become of this movie if that big theme had been explicitly Southern in some way, Hmm. had incorporated Dixie or had some kind of local color built into it, because it really doesn't. What if it had started with a, it's the old South kind of music, big and glorious. Do you think this movie would have lived on? Maybe less so, yeah. Uh, I mean, that happens. What you're just saying happens oh, repeatedly. plenty in the movie. You know, incorporating Dixie is a big job that Steiner set for himself, and that was set for him by David Oselznick. Right, but if when Scarlett O'Hara yeah. is raising her fist and saying, as God is my witness, I'm going to own slaves again, they had played <laughs> that music... 
I think this movie would have died because it would have seemed to be about history. Mm -hmm. And it seems, because of that theme, to be about something for which a specific historical situation is really just an arbitrary embodiment of this deeper, ur-emotional human thing that has no name. If I had to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. I mean, I just made a joke of it, but really, when she says, I'll never be hungry again, she's not talking about eating radishes. She's <laughs> talking about getting something back. How specific is the thing that she wants to get back? It's a loaded political question, but mm-hmm. the music says it's not specific at all. It's, you know, melodrama stuff, movie stuff, you know, the good stuff. That's it. Yeah, the good stuff. Well, the problem is in this movie, they spelled out exactly what they thought the good stuff was in that galling preamble I mentioned. They wax nostalgic about all these things from the good old days, and one of the concepts that they put right up there on the screen that they're nostalgic about is master and slave. just part of ye old gallant times that uh, the cruel Yankees took away from us. Uh, it's uh, gross. And then uh, the whole rest of the movie is filled with all of this anti-reconstruction, anti-integration, slavery apologia that is right there on the surface of the movie. So yeah, I just wasn't in the mood to have the music tell me, uh, hey, here's some uh, movie good stuff. I, I mean, it's true, though, that the music on its own, taken totally out of the context of this movie, has had long legs in standing for just some movie good stuff. Up until recently, they were playing it as the lead in every Oscars Doesn't Hollywood Love Itself <laughs> montage. So, Well, that's really the reason why it's on the AFI's list is because this main theme has absolutely come to symbolize Hollywood and golden age epic sweep Hollywood And yeah, that melody has become synonymous with it totally on its own. You know, it was used as the theme for the million dollar movie show on whatever TV channel it was. You know, it just meant a Hollywood movie. Yeah, absolutely. You would hear it in the Oscars broadcast too. And I can accept that. I can accept the music on its own as having that currency. And that is definitely why it is as high as it is on this AFI list. Because uh, hooray for Hollywood. Well, like I was saying, as I was watching the movie, I thought, yeah, this movie as a whole has that sparkle to it, embodies everything that that era of movie making aspired to. Uh, Yeah, it makes a certain sense to me that this production would have that spot, would kind of represent the golden age of Hollywood. The moral question is always like, well, you know, where is it permissible to draw a line and start having an ahistorical response? Because my aesthetic response to these movies is ultimately going to be ahistorical always. I mm-hmm. mean, you sit me down and show me a sunset and play the music, and I'm moved. At some point, that emotion becomes innocent. The question is, where do you get to draw that line? Yeah. When do we in history and in art get to draw that line? And the line is always moving around and the social attitudes about where that line is move around. And no, you're right. Look, let's move past this for now because, you know, I'm sure you can look back at other movies that we talked about at length gleefully and say that there were unsavory elements behind what was being portrayed in Aren't We Hypocritical and picking and choosing what to be indignant about. Yeah, absolutely. It factually is a important movie in movie history and an important score, so we can talk about that. That's fine, and people can listen to us talk about that if they want to, if they haven't tuned out already, my gosh. And uh, so let's move on from talking about how I really don't like this movie to talking about how I really don't like this music. (laughs) My basic thesis about the music for this movie is that that theme is great and really, really works. The way that he pins it to its subject 
the plantation terra, the land, is actually meaningful in a storytelling way. But land doesn't mean anything to you? White land is the only thing in the world worth working for, worth fighting for, worth dying for, because it's the only thing that lasts. Oh, Paul, you talk like an Irishman. It's proud I am that I'm Irish. And don't you be forgetting, Missy. When you hear this theme come back when she's considering her connection to the land, when she's considering her home, and when she's standing, uh, you know, next to the photogenic trees there, and you hear this theme... Boy, that's a real accomplishment. And yeah, this idea that we've been coming back to over the past several episodes, that the music is a generalizing force there, I think it is absolutely doing as you say there. It's making it seem like her emotions can be our emotions, and we can understand this, and this is worth an audience's time. I think it does that terrifically. And that pretty much everything else in the score uh, can go in the garbage. That's how I feel. The rest of the score does nothing for me. I tried to pay attention to it, and sort of the way I remember you said that when you were trying to watch The Magnificent Seven, your eyes kept sliding past it. <laughs> That's how I felt about this music, is my ears just couldn't pay attention. I just couldn't grab onto it. It just kept sliding past my ears. Indiscernibly, it was just a big blob of mush. And when this theme came out of the mush, that was something. But ah, the mush... I think we can uh, call in an example here. Let's hear some mush. <laughs> Come on, mush, right? Look, last time we had Max Steiner on the show... Yep so to speak, (laughs) we teased him for all of this chromatic up and chromatic down. And the specific object of the teasing there was that he was using this to convey physical emotion up and down. And it was so on the nose and so basic a technique that it seemed funny to us. Here, his predilection for chromatic moving up and moving down is still in effect, but He's using it a different way, and I have to say that, for me, I both agree that it slides past your ear and is very difficult to listen to with a kind of music-analytical attitude. It's very difficult to hear as notes for me, especially (laughs) in the context of the movie. But that doesn't mean that it's worthless. It doesn't mean that it means nothing to me. My takeaway from the score was that Max Steiner's fixations on sliding things around. Yeah, boy. Uh, here, actually, wait. Let me read this quote. Let me read this quote instead of saying it myself. Here's one of Selznick's innumerable memos where he uh, had a lot of opinions about the music. Here's something that he directed Max Steiner. Stop throwing music off key and doing tricks with it. <laughs> Stop having the music try to tell the dialogue. And use music for what it's supposed to be used for, which is mood. Stop Mickey Mousing, except we're especially asked for. I thought, that's funny that Selznick felt those ways, because those are the things about Steiner's style that have, I think, aged the poorest, or that are the most specific to that era. Yes. But in the context of that era, of that era's movies, they have a certain effect for me. I wouldn't suggest it for a movie now wouldn't suggest they make this movie now, and I wouldn't suggest that they score it this way. But given that they did, it has something that I can savor to it. 
when he schmaltzes it up, it adds this particular kind of heightened artificiality that Hollywood celebrates for a reason. I don't know. It has a kind of glow to it. And that slippery sliding around stuff that's underneath all of the scenes. Here, let's listen to one of the scenes where Scarlett is professing her pointless love for Ashley. <laughs> what is this, Scarlett? Secret? Ashley, I love you. Scarlet. I love you, I do. So this is the theme for Scarlet's obsession with Ashley. Da 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 And here it is in position. It just played as a theme. And if you hear it four times in a row, you think, alright, I get it, that's a tune. Yeah, see, I didn't even do that. I couldn't, my ears weren't even focused in on this music well enough to hear that four times in a row and recognize it as a tune. Like, I could only appreciate that there were actually themes for these things way after the fact, after a couple watches and listening through the score and then reading about what the intended themes are. Seriously, the whole time it just was indistinguishable mush to me while I was watching. And maybe it's because the difference between him playing an actual theme four times in a row, so you know it's a theme, the difference between that and just taking some haphazard collection of notes and sliding them up a half step and then up another half a step and then another half a step, I mean, that's why I felt like my ears were sliding past everything because it was just intentionally being slid around and given no form and architectural landmarks for your ears. I think it endeavors to be an amoeba-like blob. And Yes, like, yes, that's exactly my point. It is entirely deliberate. He has a taste for this. He yeah. has gone in this direction deliberately. He picks a theme that's a smeary sliding around, and then he slides that theme around. Yeah. And so Selznick is yelling at him, don't do that. But <laughs> I think he has some kind of special affinity for the action of the sequences. And I'm thinking here especially of these scenes like the one we're just listening to, where, you know, the two characters are in a clinch and they are soaping each other's faces with dialogue. <laughs> they're, they're just like, oh, we can never say this again. And we just shan't be together. And why don't you realize I love you? And I have to leave you. And this kind of so, stuff. You, so you're saying that uh, that you enjoyed this stuff? You're, you're saying that this contributes to a movie that you were compelled by well john whether or not you like it you have to admit that that is like one of the basic food groups in many decades of american culture the soapy melodramatic clinch shot is an important thing yeah okay no matter how you feel about it personally like a lot of people got something out of that and i think max steiner has a way with these that yes it's just corny old-fashioned stuff but he's in there with them listen to him hit the emotional turning point you do care don't you yes i care Oh, can't we go away and forget we ever said these things? But how can we do that? You know, Selznick says, stop trying to do the dialogue with the music. But to me, it contributes something. Oh, my dear, why must you make me say things that will hurt you? How can I make you understand? You're so young and unthinking, you don't know what marriage means. I know, I love you and I want to be your wife. Yeah, you want me to come out and say that it felt like it worked? Let's go to the final scene where Rhett is leaving. You know, Scarlett has finally realized that she's wasted four hours throwing herself at Ashley when in fact Rhett Butler is the famous Rhett Butler from Gone with the Wind and she should have been more into being a couple with him on screen and he's walking out the door. Oh, Rhett. Rhett, please don't say that. I'm so sorry. 
I'm so sorry for everything. My darling, you're such a child. You think that by saying I'm sorry, all the past can be corrected. Here, take my handkerchief. Never in any crisis of your life have I known you to have a handkerchief. You didn't feel like that dialogue scene had some impact? The thing that most stood out to me about the music from that scene is how much attention it paid to going up and down the stairs. Oh, here, here's uh, here's Selznick. <clears throat> Quote, the music for Rhett going downstairs suddenly goes blah where it should be emotional. And then we get into Mickey Mouse treatment for the very emotional spot of Scarlet running down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Rhett! Rhett! John, I think that's cool. I think that it's like the soapy exaggeration of the thing has peaked and like it's poking its head out the top into actual ballet. Oh, no, it is not like that at all because he's been obsessed with this staircase the whole movie Longsteiner has. Every single time somebody goes up or down it, it's like the most important thing to him. You know, like here's somebody going up the stairs. Here's somebody coming down the stairs. It's just stairs, stairs, stairs. Because he is compelled by the most superficial thing available to him. That's really how it felt to me. But it has an effect. It has an effect for me. I'll just speak for myself and for millions of people who love this movie. Sorry to all you. None of them are still listening, so go on. (laughs) It has an effect for me that all of this is a dance. It's like the more abstract, the more ahistorical, so to speak, it becomes the closer we're getting to the heart of the matter. When she is coming down the stairs at the end and the orchestra says, she's coming down the stairs, she's coming down the stairs, she's coming down the stairs, it's because she's coming down to have her final exchange with Rhett Butler and we know it. and the sense of tragic finality is upon us and the pattern of that kind of emerges out. It's like we talk about music generalizing. For me, a well-placed Mickey Mouse in the idiom of 1939 is like generalizing beyond the general. It's like we've gone beyond the world of emotions into the world of just big shapes. It's just pure stylization. Boy, you are really predisposed towards music going up and down stairs with people. I remember. I liked it in Sunset Boulevard too yeah and you didn't like it there either yeah well again i think you're reading a lot more into it than steiner was thinking about because the idea of going up and down seems to be his main means of you know indicating anything it's what he does at every moment when he wants to indicate that the tension is rising his move is take the thing that you just heard take the last four or five notes and play them again up a half step and again and again and that matches the strictly superficial emotional topography here without actually thinking about what the emotions are it's just there's more there's more there's more like here's a spot where scarlet is having an earlier conversation in the movie with Rhett. she's really upset and yelling at him and the music indicates that she's getting upset by just going creeping up and up and up and up I want my mother I want to go and then he tries to soothe her and he folds her up in his arms and this momentarily placates her and you listen to the music it's like somebody blows up a balloon Let's the air out. 
And it's like, this is how to track the progression of the emotion. She's upset, she's upset, she's upset. Now she's slightly less upset, she's less upset, she's less upset. It never didn't sound cheesy to me. It never didn't sound corny. The fact that it does the same thing for people walking up the stairs as when the surface amount of emotional energy is going up and down did not play well for me. Well, there's no denying that there's a lot of up and down, but I think it's done with insight into how to keep those scenes feeling puffed up, heightened, keep them feeling like they're in that melodramatic zone. No, I, I don't love you. It's a lie. Well, even if it is a lie, do you think I'd go off and leave Melanie and the baby? Break Melanie's heart, Scarlett. I'm defending it because I feel like making fun of it is so easy. Like, it makes fun of itself. Well, then to watch a movie from this era, I go into a zone where I'm like, okay, oh my God, she loves him, but he can't love her, but he does love her, but he won't say that he loves her. And this music, I felt, go ahead, but I felt just in my gut, the music is why I get it. Max Steiner picks the right points to go up. Oh, but she's striving for him. The music is pushing, and then where it's sighing down, no, we can never be together. There's a skill and a craftsmanship there that would be much harder to do, I think, than you might think, oh, anyone could do that, just slide some stuff around. It gets inside the actual lines of the actual scene. Like Selznick said, stop doing the dialogue. He really is doing the dialogue. <laughs> Here, of course, he's doing the kiss. You do love me, you do love me. No, don't, don't. You love me, you we love won't me. do this, I tell you, we won't do it. It won't happen again. I'm going you to take Melody me. and the baby and go. Say it, you love me. All right, I'll say it. I love your courage and your stubbornness. I love them so much that a moment ago I could have forgotten the best wife a man ever you had. But Scarlet, I'm not going to forget her. It feels to me inflated. It makes the dialogue into big puffy balloon letters that I am able to savor what that is and be impressed with the knack for it that Max Steiner had. <laughs> Maybe I was just, you know, predisposed to not get into it because of how off-putting I found the whole endeavor. And so I, you know, wouldn't let myself get caught up with what it wanted to catch me up with. But really, I'm sorry, I just didn't feel the knack here. Every single time he charted that somebody was more upset or less upset by taking things and sliding them up and down, every single time it took me out of the emotion. It made me feel less connected by being so surface and superficial, mm. which means the same thing, mm. and just so knee-jerk. The first idea that you can think of thinking about what is happening is what gets transcribed. It felt like a wall between me, and ra you know, rather than inviting me through the screen to feel what the characters were feeling, the music felt like it was distancing me from them. Because, you know, I'm watching this soap opera emotional thing happen, the music is endorsing that each individual instantaneous emotional upturn and downturn is really what is important, then like, there's no way in for me. It's not about something that I can feel. It seemed to me like it was on the surface and it was emphasizing the surface in such a way that I could no longer penetrate the surface there. How about that? 
I hear that as an objection, but to me it doesn't gel with the objection that it's all slippery and your ear can't even grab onto it. I agree that this is music that you don't really grab onto, you just kind of feel going in the background, and that's why it feels right to me. It's the ground that you're walking on, and the ground ramps up and ramps down, and it's just subtle. You're not looking at the ground, you're just feeling these waves going, waves of emotion. You know, it's like camera work. If you were like, you keep zooming on the characters, which indeed does happen a lot in this movie. The effect for me of a camera zoom, if it is at the right place in the emotion, is it just gels with the emotion into one thing. You're like, oh, she's feeling something and that's why we're pushing into her. It's just natural. And yeah. for me, the music, at least in those dialogue scenes, functions exactly at that level. Like, I don't know what this tune is. I don't know what's going on. I hear some kind of orchestra sounds. But if they happen at the right time, I feel the push and pull of them All as right. part of the fabric of the scene. And that's how well, they function. Yeah, fair point, because millions of people do love this movie and millions of people do get a lot out of soap operas. And who am I to tell them not to? You know, I'm coming to this with my ear and the things that I am inclined to pay attention to, you know, over on the Settling the Photography podcast, maybe they are complaining about how much they're zooming in and out. Yeah. But uh, this is, uh, this is how I came to it. I'm sorry, Andy. I'm, I, I feel... No, no, no. Don't, don't apologize. I'm just arguing with you because it's so exciting we get to argue. <laughs> Here's something that I will agree with you about what is failing about this score. Okay. And is too superficial. Yeah. A lot of the scenes that aren't these kind of intense emotional dialogue scenes have been scored with a, look who's on screen, it's Mammy, I wrote a theme for Mammy, I'm going to put that music in. Look who's on screen, it's uh, Melanie, I wrote a theme for Melanie, I'm going to put that music in. Look what they're talking about, it's Tara, I wrote a theme for that, I'm going to put that music in. Mm -hmm. For me, the problem with that is not that the emphasis on the superficial alienates me, it's that it's a missed opportunity to help me through the progression of these four hours. I do think that that arises for the reason you're saying. It's kind of a knee-jerk, silent movie accompanist's attitude, which is like I have my material spread around. I've got 12 pieces of sheet music in front of me on the piano, and I can just glance to whichever one corresponds to what's on screen. My take is that he rises above that and cares about what's going on during these soapy scenes that you don't like at all, but that indeed he does do that through the movie, and it hurts the movie because of the movie's enormous length and complexity that it doesn't have a bigger plan than that. Yeah, I mean, and this is something that really only became clear to me upon further inspection, because again, I really could not discern what was whose theme as I was just watching through the movie the first time. And yeah, sure enough, it turns out there is a theme for Mammy. By the way, can I just say, just a quick depressing aside here, is that the character played by Hattie McDaniel is, uh, what's her name? We don't know her name. Yeah, because she doesn't have a name. Mammy is not a name. Mammy is a job, is a position. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, I'm just saying. It's not just a character that doesn't have a name. There's plenty of characters that don't have names. This is a character who is a person who doesn't have a name. I do want to say I genuinely did find Hattie McDaniel to give the most affecting performance in the movie. I thought she was just terrific. That scene where they're walking up the stairs and she is basically just recounting some action that hasn't been on screen. It's not a very good monologue. No, it's not well written, but... It's not, and she sells it with enormous emotion. Yes. And then that night... Mr. Red, he locked himself in the nursery with Miss Bonnie. When he wouldn't even open the door, when Miss Scarlett beat all and hollered to him. And that's where it's been for two whole days. Oh, man. <laughs> and come on, John, don't you think Max Steiner supports her in a tasteful and helpful way? Uh, yeah, okay, fair point. I did note that that was a scene that worked relatively well for me. Sure. Put my child in the, 
in the dark when she's so scared of it. We're talking about the moment after Rhett and Scarlet's daughter, Bonnie Blue, has died, which is very, very sad. Right. Rhett is despondent, and Rhett and Scarlet have been arguing, and Mammy is horrified, and their saintly, saintly friend Melanie is there to help, and she's telling her what's gone on. And there's this music that makes it, you know, the performance is wonderful and does a lot with this text that has really nothing going on. And the music gets in there in a way that supports it. All right, I'm not going to deny it in this case. Didn't you find it kind of weird the moment when Bonnie does die? (laughs) She's like, it might be just like when my dad died earlier in the movie. It is just like when my dad died earlier in the movie. (laughs) She has this like moment of epiphany of realizing, oh, she's jumping on a horse. Dad jumped on a horse and the camera zooms in. She has this epiphany. It's like she figured out a clue in a treasure hunt movie. Oh, my daughter's death is hidden in the library. Just like Paul. Yeah, well, again, that's the pitch that this movie is pitched at. You're supposed to be enjoying not just the experience of witnessing these people's lives, but the experience of witnessing this marvelous film about this marvelous epic of these people's (laughs) lives. And so sometimes the people in the movie kind of know that. They're like, this movie Gone with the Wind is so big, and oh, I just realized what happens next in it. It feels natural. It feels natural. It feels completely unnatural. I don't mean a naturalistic, but it feels like, yes, that is the kind of movie I'm watching. Okay, back to what you were saying. Back to what I was saying about themes. Yeah, I was saying that I was unaware that these people actually had themes associated with them. But yeah, once you pay attention to the music, you realize that not only are there themes, but they are... I shouldn't use the word slavishly associated with just those things and those people being on the screen or mentioned. And yeah, I think it hurts the movie. I'm glad you agree on that. I am not saying that the associations hurt the movie. I'm saying that the lack of intentionality behind that process. Yeah, I have a couple examples where I felt like it was ridiculous, that process. Okay, go ahead. Like after her second husband dies. Right, Frank. Frank, whom she didn't care about really, and who also was, you know, a Klansman, turns out. Mm Mm-hmm. So we see a shot of her drinking. She's drowning her sorrows, or are they even sorrows? You know, what does she really feel about the death of this husband? Guilt. She says it to Rhett in the next scene. Yeah, that's what it should be. That's what it should feel like. What does the music sound like? Apparently, this music was intended to be a theme for Scarlet. Is that right? The music that plays while she's drinking. It is played in this very doop de doop de doop de doo comic drinking trope, like from uh, Looney Tunes cartoon, where they would play, uh, you know, Little Brown Jug or something when somebody was drunk. It has that kind of winking ha ha. Right. When somebody's drunk, they go hick, and here she is drinking, and it's drunk times. Yeah, and so, like, he gives that drunk treatment to the scarlet motif. And I was like, come on, man. Tell me what she's thinking about here. Is she sad or not? Is she... Yeah, you have to wait for the dialogue to find out what it means. Music should have been doing that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's certainly characteristic of the era and the Selznick attitude and the big studio something-for-everyone style of the movie that it's handled in this lighthearted way. That's the kind of storytelling that's going on. For me, the big issue is that that is Scarlet's theme. Scarlet is the hero of the movie. Yeah, Scarlet exactly. is the center of the action. And I think Steiner actually, some years later, said that he had some regrets about the material he chose for Scarlet, and they might be... <laughs> 
kind of reflected in the way that material is used. I think what his procedure was is that the very first step in his compositional process was he wrote themes so that he had them for all the major characters, all the major relationships, all the minor characters, scenes that wouldn't otherwise have themes associated with. He just wrote a lot of material and then he had this material in front of him and then he started doling it out the material he seems to have written at that phase for scarlet o'hara is this thing that goes da 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 Yeah, I would have never guessed that that was a theme for Scarlet. It just sounds like some of the connective frippery that is throughout the whole score. I think he probably thought that that was acceptable because the Terra theme was going to be the main theme. It was going to represent her deepest yearnings and strength. And then there's Scarlet herself, just this little tune, just a motif. But then he backs away even from that. The first shot in the movie is our introduction to Scarlet Shot. It's a big push, I believe, right? Up to her on the porch of the plantation. Mm -hmm. She's being wooed by two twins at once. You know who one of those twins is? I don't. It's George Reeves, TV's Superman. Oh, it's Superman. Yeah. Well, instead of hearing what I think we should hear at that point, which is... The Superman theme? The Superman theme. What I think we should hear at that point is whatever we're going to associate with Scarlet, now is your chance. We're meeting her. Yeah. Her face is filling the screen. This is Scarlet. You know those poor Yankees actually want a war? We'll show them. Fiddly thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This war talk's spoiling all the fun at every party this spring. I get so bored I could scream. Instead, what we hear is a theme that apparently Steiner called the twins. <laughs> Because he had written some music for the twins, and this is a scene that the twins are in. Right. Da 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 it a couple times in the first 20 minutes of the movie it turns out not to be a very important theme it's just kind of a scale because they're not very important characters and then also in these early scenes we hear some existing music an obscure stephen foster song called katie bell that corresponds pretty much to scarlet in her bell of the ball teenager mode at the beginning of the movie this thing that goes That's one of the many songs out of the mailbag of existing songs that got shoved into this movie. And that's there instead of Scarlet's theme. We don't hear Scarlet's theme at all until a throwaway in the middle of the barbecue, which no one would notice as anything. And then we don't hear it used functionally until two hours later. So effectively for the audience, she has no theme. Yes. It has no signifying function. I think this is a real count against this score, Andy, that you seem to be in tune with, which is that he doesn't do a good job of associating music with the things that it should be associated with. Look, I'm not denying it. I, You know, as far as the themes go, I had basically the same experience as you on my first watch through. I could hardly recognize any of them. In fact, at the very end of the movie, when she says, where will I go and what will I do? And he leaving her says... He says, I think it's something like, I cannot tell a lie. I He says, to be honest, lady, yeah. I've thought about this. I've considered it. It's and a famous line in movie history. It's like... Miss, you know, the more I think about it, I realize it just doesn't matter to me that much. So good day. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, I'll give it to you straight, honey. I don't mind one way or another. That's how it is. I learned these past couple weeks prepping for this that David O'Selznick wrote the word frankly in that line all right it's a good word that the line in the book is my dear i don't give a damn and it's better with frankly yeah no that was a good ad so he says this line and then he turns and goes and we hear this where shall i go what shall i do frankly my dear i don't give a damn 
I thought, I guess that must have been Rhett's team. Yep. We're about 30 seconds from the end of the movie now. <laughs> that would have worked differently if the movie had made it a priority to let the audience know what Rhett's theme was. Yeah. If you go back, you see that, oh, it has been Rhett's theme the whole time. And in fact, when Rhett first appears, we hear it. But we do not hear it in a way that has been designed to pin it to Rhett for the audience. Yeah, you know, he was given photography, he was given a golden opportunity to pin something to Rhett. There's this attractive camera move down the staircase, it pushes in on Clark Gable's handsome face and big ears, and I felt like he really fumbled the ball here in terms of pinning something to that or making something out of that moment, out of this entrance. The music just kind of lazily mushes by, doesn't it? It plays his theme for the first time, it plays it straight, it plays it like this. Here, Let's just listen to it on, you know, the album version without any dialogue. There it is. Okay, that might be good for someone's first appearance. But he places it in the scene so that we hear it start before anyone has made reference to him, before we've seen him. It corresponds basically to his off-screen gaze if you want to really try and justify it. I was awake all last night trying to figure it out. Still just looking at Scarlet. Kathleen, who's there? Who? That man looking at us and smiling. Now we see him. The nasty dog. It starts before we know that he's there, and by the time we see his face, we're hearing something else, and they talk over the whole thing. Yeah. And it doesn't land. It doesn't accomplish anything conscious. No. And so we don't get any specific benefit from it later, other than, A, it helped Max Steiner write a lot of music, which, you know, he's entitled to that, and B, to the degree that this music sounds like the character of Rhett Butler, we feel those feelings when he's on screen because he consistently uses it. And, you know, it's not bad. It's not bad for Rhett Butler. It doesn't quite have this kind of roguish quality to it. It feels a little more upright than Rhett reads on screen to me anyway. But it's not a bad theme for Rhett. What do you think? Yeah, fine. I think the second best theme in the score after the Terra theme is the Melanie and Ashley love theme. John, can you hum it? Nope. Did you know there was one? Nope. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, I guess that's music I heard in the movie. That's right. Didn't place it. You know, after I watched the movie twice and listened to the score attentively, yeah, I hear those themes. I know what they are. I wish he had hammered it home for the audience because I think I would have gotten something out of it because they're reasonably well chosen and they're, I think, reasonably well deployed in the scenes that matter. Like, here's the scene where Ashley finally comes home from the war and Melanie runs out to meet him. Here, there's some soldier in the distance, and then we hear this little motif, which is the first five notes of their love theme, but kind of quick. know what that is but then as he comes close enough for her to recognize oh it's gonna be their motif and it builds up and of course they embrace and there's the theme very 
very rewarding if you knew that was their theme. Which I didn't. Is this the actual archetype for the lovers reunited running to each other, cut back and forth between them cliche? Is this the original of that? It's hard for me to believe that this is the first time. Uh. I feel like if anything is even more old-fashioned than this movie, it's that. Yeah, okay. Surely we can find some 20s exemplar teams. Yeah, right. You're probably right. It sounds like it, though. And then there's this very i think touching theme for scarlet and Rhett's love that only emerges in the last act of the movie after their relationship has started to come apart you could also think of it as a theme for bonnie their daughter and then it lingers after her death because her death has colored everything definitely some wagner influence on this theme It's pretty. <sighs> anyway, my thought about these after dishing this to you is that you definitely are not going to track these on your first time through or even your second time through. But this is a movie that people have obsessed over for years. And this is why I felt obligated to go through the score over and over. Because I think for the people who have made this movie their home, you do start to hear these after 10 times. Well, look, I appreciate your scholarship and your dedication to your duty here. But I think I disagree. I think the fact that it takes you 10 times to realize that they have meaning and that they're tied to things and you really have to be a practiced score analyzer to figure it out is definitely germane here. It is, but it's, you know, it takes 10 times to notice it consciously. But uh, what effect does it have unconsciously? Yeah, none. It had no effect on me, Andy. None of these themes (laughs) had any effect on me when you just sung them for me just now and played me the clips. It didn't call to mind a feeling. It didn't really click into place that they were about those characters. I mean, like you said, he went through and he found all the stuff in the movie and he wrote themes for them, but I really get the sense that he did that out of some compulsion to like complete his checklist rather than because he was thinking critically about how he was going to use them to affect an audience's experience. He kind of seems to feel like his job is to match exactly what is being said or referred to or the person who's there or is off screen just to match it as it goes by. He's doing this from, yeah, this mailbag full of existing songs. And like he seems to get a kick out of making a little reference to a lyric in a song that corresponds to what's happening on the screen. He's making all these little in-jokes that no audience member would have been attuned to. Like there's a Stephen Foster song about being buried in the cold, cold ground that oh, sure, sure. Yeah. that he quotes after each of her first two husbands died because ha ha ha, they're in the cold, cold ground. But I think that's what Selznick believed in. Yeah. You use established music to create mood or make references. Make references. Like when Scarlett goes back to Terra after the war and she finds her father kind of half crazed and at one point he's talking about confederate bonds and okay when we hear that oh well, i know what confederate means it's uh, dixie here's a little bit of dixie but what kind of bonds paul we confederate bonds of course daughter confederate bonds what good are they to anybody i'll not have you talking like that katie scarlet Like, as I was watching, I'm like, I don't need the music to go, I wish I was in Dixie, look away, look away, whenever somebody says Confederate bonds. Who needs that? Well, how do you feel about that technique when, for example, she has this nightmare, she's saying, oh, she was reaching for something through a mist and she couldn't find it. She doesn't know what it was. She doesn't know what she was reaching for. And then Steiner plays the terror theme. I ran through the mist and I I couldn't find it. Find what, honey? Oh, I don't know. I, 
I always dream the same dream, and I never know. It seems to be hidden in the mist. Darling. Oh, Rhett, do you think I'll ever dream that I'd find They don't say Tara. Rhett doesn't answer her question for her. But there it is, the music saying, I have something to say. Here's a little... Are you okay with it in that context where it is answering something substantial about you know the meaning of the dialogue. Yeah, that's what I said at the beginning, is that the Tara theme actually works and contributes to the storytelling. No, of course music should point to things if it is the important thing and it's the emotional thing and the dramatic thing. That's its job. It's not its job to like take out a highlighter and say, you know, every time the word Confederate happens, you need to hear Dixie go by. Right, so you're saying it's bad highlighting. It's like if you went through a high schooler's book and they went through it with a highlighter and you were like, you just highlighted the words United States of America, like this is not going to help you study. Yeah, exactly. It's like Steiner had a different highlighter color for a whole bunch of different words, and he went through and he found all those words in the book, and then he put that highlighter color on them. Like, look, I did my job. I, every time it says the, the word the United States of America, I use my purple highlighter. Oh, he gets to use a special highlighter color when they're not in the United States of America, when they go to London. Rhett told his daughter that you're going to get to see London Bridge. London Bridge? Will it be falling down? And then she has a nightmare when she's in London, and we hear, ha ha, nightmarish London bridge is falling down. It really took me out of it. It was like, okay, fine, you have the London Bridge highlighter. Great. Congratulations. For me, it is quaint. I agree that it's not very well-grounded. It's not very sensible. But I'm not irked by it, and it doesn't necessarily take me out. And a simile I could use, it reminds me of when you see, like, print advertisements from the turn of the century or the 19th century where they will capitalize and bold words (laughs) that you don't think they should be capitalizing or bolding. Why is that word getting emphasis? Why are their fingers pointing at that word (laughs) but the whole thing adds up to a kind of a sense of showmanship in that era's voice and that's how i feel watching these movies that yeah there's too much conceptual action going on in the music for me to follow or make sense of and when i do kind of dip in to see what it's doing i realize that it's just pointing those little typographical fingers at things in a kind of over enthusiastic way i guess it was interesting to me to see that selznick was complaining about it then because i thought well i just thought everyone loved this then (laughs) i thought this is how they wanted things to sound like busy and up to its own business i mean that's the impression you get listening to this music is like it's apparently got a lot of stuff it thinks it needs to do Uh, i'm not really sure what it's doing it seems to be keeping itself busy over there and to me there's a comfort in that it's not objectionable and i suppose some listeners might think at this point some hypothetical person who doesn't like me might be thinking at this point well how did you criticize king kong and you're cool with this yeah andy and andy yeah how did you criticize King Kong and you're cool with this? Well, you didn't phrase that very well, John, but I'll answer it. In King Kong, the juice, the stuff that we're supposed to enjoy was action. The music's intention was to intensify and heighten and bring to the fore that action. So I thought it was doing that in a primitive and unrewarding way. Here, the music's purpose a lot of the time is the thing we talked about way back with Ben-Hur is just to kind of give another coat of lacquer to this giant contraption that is being sold to you to make it feel like a place where you're getting your money's worth and care has been taken and then at some subconscious level to feel like an emotional ground that this soap opera is built on and I feel like it does successfully do that 
It's an interesting comparison to King Kong because it occurred to me to compare this music to King Kong as well. I felt like it was the same approach in that it was this kind of indistinguishable wash of energy, except that he was applying that technique to society frippery and melodramatic melodrama. It felt equivalently unengaged to me. It felt like busy work that had to be churned out. And, you know, maybe in some ways that's because it really was busy work that really did have to be churned out. Selznick kind of left it too late to get going with the music. Steiner did not have a long time to score this immense long movie. In what was apparently a very common practice at the time, what he did was that he turned to a team. He had an atelier, basically, of orchestrators nominally, but who also wound up you know, contributing original material as well, including Hugo Friedhofer, who we talked about before was an orchestrator for Korngold for Robin Hood. Hugo Friedhofer has a lot of original material in this score, and other people do as well, and they were all kind of lumped together and referred to as Steiner and Company, which, uh, you know, is fine. That gets done certainly nowadays in Hollywood. It's a totally valid way to get the work done because it is an immense amount of work. And, you know, we talked about the army of people that have to churn through this factory process to put the music in the stands for the orchestra in past episodes, like for Ben-Hur. It does take a village, and that's great, but I feel like in this movie you can really hear the fact that it was kind of slopped together from, you know, a lot of different cooks, and there was not a overarching vision of how the music would affect the experience of watching the movie. It was like a lot of chores that got divvied up, and it feels like a chore. Yeah, when I was talking about how that first cue doesn't introduce us to Scarlet, doesn't really introduce us to anything important, yeah. doesn't do what you'd think a first cue would do, that may in fact be because that's one of the farmed cues. Hugo Friedhofer wrote that, and he probably wrote it to some specifications that were handed to him. When the person doing the work thinks of themselves as the assistant to the real person and they're just doing their job, ma'am, you're not inclined to think, well, wait, what about the whole production? Yeah. Don't I need to do this or that? You just fill out the form and, you know, the craftsmanship as far as deploying an orchestra is, I think, very good throughout. There's a lot of nice little touches where the celeste comes in. I mean, the colors here are much less enjoyable in their own right than the Korn Gold Friedhofer orchestrations. And those I were... kept thinking about how much better I like Robin Hood as a movie and as a score than this the whole time I was watching it. It was the previous year, 1938. So the ability to make really lasting, artistically satisfying music it was not beyond the ken of the craftspeople of the time. This kind of objection, oh, this was the style of the day and I'm not into this style... You know, there were other styles. They were doing a good job of that at the same time. You know, a connection there is that Steiner made a point of trying to get this job because he had gone from RKO to Selznick and then now was at Warner Brothers where he would stay for years. But Warner Brothers had started giving its most prestigious productions to Korngold because he was their most prestigious guy and Steiner was a little irked by that and felt that it was important for his own self-respect and his image to have a major prestige picture. And he petitioned Warner Brothers to let him step out of the studio to work on this project for Selznick because 
because if you're giving this other stuff to Korngold, let me have one big fancy movie. But then, of course, he, yes, didn't write all of it, like wrote two other movies at the same time, which pissed off Selznick big time. And uh, yeah, kind of farmed things out willy nilly. Yeah. So I just think you hear that. That contributes to why it felt unengaged and not thoughtful. You know, a movie that I thought of a bunch of times while watching this was The Wizard of Oz, the other giant movie of 1939, mm-hmm. oddly with the same credited director for whom the composer was uh, Herbert Stothert, the guy at MGM who, when Selznick was really pissed off at Steiner for his work on Gone with the Wind, he actually started talks with Stothert to maybe compose this movie, which he really wanted to do. And that didn't happen. Apparently, the story is that Selznick screened it for Stothert, who was from Georgia and really identified with it, really wanted to do it, and then went and told some people that he'd basically made a backdoor deal with Selznick <laughs> to score this movie. And it got back to Steiner, and Steiner flipped out and uh, and started actually working on it again. So <laughs> Stothert shot himself in the foot there. But anyway, I feel like there are a lot of sounds and gestures that you can also hear in The Wizard of Oz from the same year, including the use of existing music. I mean, maybe we can do a whole other episode about The Wizard of Oz in 10 years, uh, which beat this for the Oscar for best score, in fact which I'm okay with. Good. So in The Wizard of Oz, like in the middle of the movie, they start playing Schumann, they play Mendelssohn, they just play some stuff. It has a very carried over silent movie attitude about just grabbing some stuff off your shelf and sticking it in there. And all of my cozy feelings from childhood of watching that movie, of watching some institution of Technicolor comfort I have these associations. I think they're not arbitrary, but even if they are, they're there and a lot of people in the world share them. Yeah, as soon as I put on Gone with the Wind, hadn't seen it since I was a little kid, I thought, oh, yeah, I get it. It's that. It's that old comfort food. How could I kick out the score being a hodgepodge of over busy stuff? That's what goes with the territory. I, yeah. It's not It's not a uh, artistically, aesthetically well-founded critical position, but it's my honest response to this stuff when I hear it. All right, that's fine. I mean, you know, there's stuff that just got picked up off the shelf and crammed into this movie that in addition to the original score being composed by different people other than Steiner, you know, there's some cues just from other movies that uh, made their way in. Our old friend Franz Waxman has a couple of of uh, his cues that were in the temp score that Selznick liked better than what Steiner had, and they made it into the movie. Yeah, what's funny to me is that Steiner <laughs> objected, and he said, look, I don't mind that you like that music. The music is fine. Yeah, here, I have the quote right here. He says, I do not question or criticize your liking that piece of preview track, which is what they must have called the temp track then. I do strongly object to it on account of bad modulation, different type recording, different orchestra, and improper ending under this screen. <laughs> Why have such glaring imperfections in what may prove to be the best picture to date, and why to top it all have a botched-up job in one of the best scenes where there is not even any dialogue to cover it up? Please excuse my rotten typing, but I am extremely nervous and worried. <laughs> it's funny to me that Steiner complains about bad modulation, because <laughs> if you listen to the juncture here between these two clips... sounds like what Steiner is doing in every bar of this score. It's not, yep. <laughs> that modulation is not distinctly worse or less sensible than anything else. I had to read about it to find out that happened. I would ne- it would have never occurred to me that that music wasn't actually continuously composed. Yeah, also they were both of them hepped up on Benzedrine. Like they were getting <laughs> zero sleep and doing the work on amphetamines. It's like this sense of mania behind <laughs> the making of this. Yeah. When you start to read about how this movie was made, I mean it's like a bottomless pit of behind the scenes information, which I'm glad that we were 
were able to do this episode as an argument about whether it's any good rather than having to get into that stuff because there's so much of it. But yeah, Selznick believed in drugging himself into a state of productivity <laughs> and Steiner to meet the schedule did the same and like was administered benzodrine so that he wouldn't have to sleep. So they sent crazy nervous notes to each other. Yeah, great. Uh, all right, let's move towards the end here, Andy. But before we get there, I have a little bit of trivia for you. Do you remember towards the end of the movie when, spoiler alert, Olivia de Havilland's character Melanie dies for no reason that I can discern besides that, like, that's the next thing that Scarlett should have to endure in the drama? She's saintly. She's got to die. Well, and then her son is carried crying away from her deathbed. You remember that? Right. Do you know when we've seen that kid before in our show? Gosh, no. That kid actor who plays Olivia de Havilland's son grows up to be the guy who tells Vivian Lee how to take the streetcar named Desire to the Elysian Fields at the beginning of that movie. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> when they were on the set of A Streetcar Named Desire, that guy piped up and said, you know, when I was a child actor, I worked with Vivian Lee before. She heard about it and then she was really nice to him and invited him over and had a nice chat. Well, that's sweet. It occurred to me while watching this for the first time, maybe everyone will be like, yes, duh, Andy. But is the name Blanche Dubois a specific parody of Scarlett O'Hara? Well, I was about to say, I feel like, I don't want to read too much into Tennessee Williams' motivations, but maybe I can. I bet people have written this paper already. I feel I feel like the character of Blanche Dubois is sort of an intentional rebuke to the romanticization of the Old South that Scarlett O'Hara represents. And it's kind of interesting that Vivian Lee got to be both of them for that reason. That further makes me think that this thing that I noticed when we were talking about the score of A Streetcar Named Desire, I just don't think it's a coincidence that when Vivian Lee and Carl Malden are having this kind of schmaltzy romantic moment in that movie, it's this kind of tragic pretense towards a Hollywood-style romance that they can't actually have. Right in that moment, here's how Alex North's score goes. Oh, sometimes... God, so quickly. Come on, that's gotta be a reference. That's gotta be like, here's the Hollywood schmaltz romance that they're reaching for and that you might remember Vivian Lee had something to say about it before and then it just kind of washes away in North score. Well, that is an interesting observation. I am not sure whether I believe that it's an intentional reference to the score, but it's interesting. Good case to make. It's in there. It's there. Certainly, I think that Streetcar Named Desire is some kind of response or complication of Gone with the Wind and that the double casting there is meaningful. Is meaningful. Okay. Do you want to review? Yeah. Okay. So it sounds to me like you're going to put this higher up on your list than I am. You want to go first or you want me to go first? Um, I want you to go first. I want you to scare me with how low you put it <laughs> and then I'll see if I can. And Andy, start quaking in your boots because I legitimately considered putting this at the very bottom of my list. I thought, what's at the bottom of my list? Pink Panther, Out of Africa. I enjoy the music out of those movies. I feel like more than I enjoy any of this music. I think I'm not quite going to put it down that low because of what I said about the Terra theme itself and how that actually is accomplishing a storytelling aim and is propping up, you know, an emotional resonance that was so compelling that it became a stand-in for the concept of Hollywood itself. It's valuable enough in having done that, that it gets to go above out of Africa, but under high noon, 
on my list. Hmm. You know, I gave King Kong extra points when we ranked that for being a progenitor of the concept of film scoring in the first place. He doesn't get those points again. I just didn't, uh, I just didn't like it. Huh, you didn't like it. Well, yep, I'm going to put it higher than that. Are you going to put it above King Kong? I'm going to put it above King Kong. That is clear to me. That feels just obvious to me. Even if we were just going by highlights, the highlight reel, the Oscars montage, when the Terra theme plays and those pullback shots go, and there are three of them, I get chills of some kind. I have an immediate reaction. Yeah, those are effective. That octave leap, those harmonies, and that beautiful violin line above it all coming down. The emotional force and, I think, insight into to go back to the unpleasant first aspect of this conversation i think insight into how to extract from this essentially indefensible cause an emotional core that would be accessible to everyone i think is done so well there that it's problematic (laughs) you know i get chills and then i think what am i getting chills about exactly i'm not entirely sure and the movie lives on your being not entirely sure but knowing that something means something and that it's worth fighting for and trying to get back whatever it is very politically dangerous thing to do and very musically effective and I felt it every time. And then, like I'm saying, these schmaltz scenes, we never did the quote. Here it is. <clears throat> quote, I think the score is coming along fine and if you'll just go mad with schmaltz in the last three reels, I will undoubtedly be as happy through the years with the memory of a great Steiner score as has always been the case in the past. I think that when he goes mad with schmaltz, he's doing a thing that has value and you're saying he's not doing a thing and it doesn't have value and what can I say? I just feel it differently i feel moved somewhere in between the level that they want me to be moved on where i care about the characters (laughs) and a kind of meta aren't movies wonderful and corny level i feel embraced by it i feel like it's a cushion and there's something warm and generous about that kind of corny luxury oh boy i'm really bracing for how high you're gonna put this so for me it goes above king kong Mm -hmm. it's comparable in its function to ben-hur i think ben-hur was better organized but less moving but because of that thing i did where i put ben-hur above on the waterfront i would feel a little weird putting this above on the waterfront because you know on the waterfront was written with a fine-tipped pen and with care and with class even if it got some things wrong and this is written as we've been saying kind of with throwing the kitchen sink across the room so i'm gonna put it between laura and on the waterfront okay i think that it serves the movie better than laura's score served that movie and uh, i just explained why it has to go that low okay I'm a little relieved. I was worried that you would let it breach on the waterfront, which I feel like on your list is lower than it should be. But I guess I can understand. I guess I can grok that. Yeah, if it really did affect you, if you really came to the movie and were able to enjoy it as a movie without having your whole outlook towards it be tainted, which I certainly was not, then okay, if you want to say it wrapped you up in the warm blanket of watching a Hollywood movie and that's worth something... Okay. I mean, it's like the most problematic blanket possible Hollywood movie, and it's much too long. I didn't enjoy it straight through in a comfortable way, and I indeed was ticking things off in my head that were moral hypocrisies. Like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe they're saying this. Well, they are. That's just what this is. So I didn't have just like a fun old time watching this, but definitely I felt like I was being fed a food that I've known my whole life and that I will always be like, hmm, <laughs> yeah. 
There it is. Mm, some schmaltz. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Grandma. Uh, okay. We're done. We're done talking about this movie, right? We're done. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Okay. Uh, hey, Andy, you remember at the beginning of this episode when I said that next time we're going to get to finally the number one movie on the list? Boy, do I remember that. I lied again for the same reason. Because I think that next time we're going to do what we did last year, which is we're going to do an episode devoted to the Oscar nominees, which are going to come out before too long, pretty soon here in January. And we're going to get to work on the current 2019 Oscar nominees for score. That is, we're going to do that unless we have been asked to host the ceremonies, which could happen at this point. Unless, because you think it would be a conflict of interest? It would be a conflict, and frankly, we'd probably be busy with that. I think it would be problematic. Someone else will write the material for us. You just have to read it off the teleprompter. Mm, All right, well, I'm game if you are. You know, I looked the other day at a likely nominees list, and I thought, boy, I really have not been following along. I had no idea this is the field. But you can bet that by the time we go on a podcast and talk about it, I'll have watched them all and developed a lot of opinions. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. We're recording this, obviously, before the nominations are out, and I am not sure what they're going to be. But I'm looking forward to that. And then, hey, just like last year again, after we take our Oscars break, we're going to come back with a beloved John Williams score. And, uh, well, that'll be something. It will. You know what that movie's got going for it? It's much shorter oh my gosh. than this one. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons it's popular. Probably. All right, well... What do we say now? If you liked our show, leave us a review on iTunes. If you liked other episodes of this show that were um, <laughs> more pleasant to listen to. If you used to like this show, <laughs> then uh, leave a review to that effect on iTunes. And uh, <laughs> check in with us on Twitter at Scoresettlers. Boy, I, uh, I'm usually all cheery and eager to encourage the listeners to chime in with what they think. I am <laughs> you don't want to hear anyone's maybe thoughts about a this. a little more uh, hesitant this time. But, uh, boy, can you imagine if uh, How the West was one guy, the guy who took us to task last year for judging these old movies from our 2017 armchairs? What if he got wind of this episode? Well, look, I didn't sit in my 2018 armchair to evaluate this movie. I slipped back into my 1939 yeah. Snuggie. <laughs> That's definitely a thing you can uh, fault me about, is that I certainly was perched like a vulture on my 2018 ergonomic stool as I was watching this movie. Yeah. So. Well, it has its pros and its cons. Yeah. Its pros are that you can see things clearly, and its cons are that you can't like them anymore. <laughs> uh, thanks for bearing with us. Thank you for bearing with us. Tomorrow is another podcast episode. Right. As God is my witness, I won't be reviewing this movie again. Yeah. <laughs>